This is an ABC podcast. If you're a keen runner and you're racking up the Ks, you probably go through two, three, even four pairs of running shoes a year. What do you do with the old ones? When you look at a running shoe, they're typically made out of up to 100 pieces. And these pieces are stitched together, welded, glued. It's not good for the environment because they're very hard to take apart. So it's impossible to recycle them. Um, we found a way to make a product out of five pieces. So once you're done with your shoe, we'll take it back, we'll clean it, we'll shred it, we'll melt it and make it into a new fresh pair of running shoes. Hi, I'm Amanda Smith and more on this plan to put running shoes into the circular economy later here on Sporty. Before that though, we're getting down with the kids. Yeah, yes, that's a new pose. So whenever your baby freeze, try to end with that figure four because it looks really nice. Yeah. Try go, try go on your side of your head instead of your face. So try go here. Yeah, so yeah, feel that instead of this. Because it hurts on your, yeah, like that. Nice. And make sure you just keep that strong. Nice. This is a children's class in breakdancing, more properly known as breaking. These nine and ten-year-olds will still be too young to compete when breaking becomes part of the Olympic Games in Paris in three years' time, but their teacher won't be. Hello, my real name is Christian Francisco. My b-boy name is b-boy Nanoi. I'm 19 years old. And why does everyone in breaking have a b-boy or b-girl special name? I think it just represents who they are. And where does Nonoi come from for you? It's actually my Filipino nickname, so my parents call me that. They call me at home and my cousins call me that, so I just kept with it. And so, Nonoi, when did you start... Should I call you Nonoi or Christian? Yeah, Nonoi. Nonoi, okay. Uh, when did you start breaking? I started breaking hip-hop and choreography in 2010 when I was eight. Wow, that's young. Yeah. And then I did breaking till 2014... And then I had a little break from 2015-16. I got back to work 2017 and then I started doing more battles and stuff. And are you wanting to compete at the Olympic Games in Paris? I would love to. That would be great. But if I don't get the chance, I hope like my friends do. And how good are Australian breakdancers on the world stage? Australian breakers on the world stage. Breakers. I should say breakers, not breaker dancers. Yeah. <laughs> Australian breakers, we're very high level and we're very like wild on stage so it will be very refreshing to see us because our movement is like is more explosive very eye-catching to watch well can you describe and explain what breaking is Mm. so breaking is an element that comes from hip-hop so hip-hop has five elements knowledge breaking graffiti djing and emceeing which is like rapping and breaking is like a dance form where we start with an up rock, like a groove, and then we get down to our floor work. From our floor work, we can transition into our power moves, which are the more explosive moves. And that's like head spins, windmills, halos. I have a kid in my class, and he's probably nine years old, 10 years old, and he's already doing windmills. And like, yeah, it's just cool because he kind of reminds me of myself when I was like his age, because I was doing the same thing. Um, but 
breaking is pretty much art and storytelling in dance where we can get onto the ground and just tell a story. So what sort of stories do you tell in your breaking? Hmm. If my rounds are very explosive, I could imitate something from like a cartoon that I've seen, you know? So like if there's Tom and Jerry and he's running away from someone, I can imitate that and then add that into my routine. So given, given that breaking is going to be in the Olympic Games, do you see breaking as a sport? That's a very hard question. Yes and no, because breaking, there's so much training and preparation in order to become a world-class b-boy or b-girl. We pretty much train exactly like athletes. Like We have to eat differently. We have to go to the gym. We put in those hours we watch through our battles. It's pretty much the same thing like if you're in a basketball game, they watch through the, the games, they see their mistakes, they put in their effort right after. It's pretty much the same thing, but at the same time, I say no because breaking is an art form, you know? Like, it shouldn't be judged. But it is, and you yeah, do but compete. It is. Yeah, I do compete. But then again, I have so much respect for the culture because before the competitions that we're just doing ciphers and ciphers is pretty much like you in a circle and then someone goes in they do their round and then comes out and then so on yeah i've seen groups of of young men and women doing that in the street yes respect the culture but at the same time yeah tournaments and stuff that's really cool and like it's pretty sick seeing how big b-boying has come from the 1970s to now so what's your most difficult advanced move oh I think my most advanced would be like a elbow air flare, which I haven't done in a long time. But what is it? Elbow air flare. So it's pretty much when you you put your weight on your elbow, one elbow, and then you spin and lift off your elbow and land onto the other elbow. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is really a dance form that more boys and men than girls and women participate in. That's kind of unusual. What is it about breaking, you reckon, that appeals to guys? I think the strength. Not that the girls don't have it, but I don't know what it is with boys, but they just like doing handstands and all that, you know, like they just like that. But then again, the girls are actually leveling up and you see like girls that are just doing crazy power moves and just just killing it nice okay now you have three moves six step cc zula spin you don't have to do it in that order you can switch it up so maybe let's go cc six step zula spin Australia's top-ranked female breaker is Rachel Gunn. She's B-girl Ray Gunn. And like B-boy Nonoi, Christian Francisco, Rachel's hoping to compete at the 2024 Paris Olympics. Again, I'm curious to know how breaking fits into being an Olympic sport. So breaking is a dance style, but more than just a dance style, breaking is a culture dating back to New York in the 70s. And it's also a community, both a local community and an international community. So cultural art form as well as a sport. Yes, well, that's the first time you've mentioned sports. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm getting it's a dance style, a culture, a community. Why is it a sport? Competition has always been a key part of the scene. Uh, It's also called battling. These were 
more informalized, sometimes spontaneous battles that would occur. And then over the last few years, there have been an increase in formalized competitions, particularly international competitions. These might be individual, they might be full crew, which could have eight to 12 breakers, let's say. So competition has had a long history in breaking culture, but it's also tied to reputation. It's an important place where you develop and showcase your individual style and develop a name for yourself. So even though it's, as I said, it is an art form, it is a community, there's always been this huge emphasis on competition. And I think that's where we can see those comparisons with sport. And how did it come about that that breaking was chosen to be in the (laughs) Olympic Um, Games? That is an interesting story. (laughs) So actually the World Dance Sport Federation, WDSF, proposed breaking as an Olympic sport. Now, this federation, uh, better known for ballroom competitions and other partner dance styles. Ballroom's a long way from breaking. It is a long way from breaking, yes. They've been trying to get ballroom and, and some of these partner dance styles into the Olympics for a long time. And they proposed breaking as a, a kind of last shot to you know try and get into the games. And they were successful. Now, this came as a huge shock to the breaking community who had not heard of WDSF prior to this submission. So it was quite controversial. This was back in 2016, 2017. So it's been an interesting journey for breakers because it's it's not like breakers have been advocating for this for <laughs> for years and years and decades. Uh, we're kind of on the back foot with this and you've got these scenes that all around the world are suddenly trying to get organized, develop systems of governance and accountability and transparency in what was and has been this very underground culture that exists outside institutions. So it's a very interesting time for breaking around the world. And I imagine that not everyone in the breaking world is still happy about it becoming an Olympic sport. No, no, it's not. Absolutely. Um, Because breaking has really appealed to people that are interested in expressing themselves in different ways. And it's been a lot freer, you know, not having those really regulated rules and systems of governance uh, has been a place that's been appealing for people in breaking. So certainly not everyone uh, supports this move to the Olympics, but I think what we're going to see is potentially a fragmentation of the culture. I think still have an underground scene, but also a scene that is very involved in that Olympic process. How is how is breaking different to other dancey sorts of sports uh, that are in the Olympic program, like gymnastics or figure skating? A significant way breaking differs from those activities is that it's largely improvised. You don't prepare a set routine to a set song and work on that routine for two years or, you know, however long. You are really preparing for any number of things to happen on the day. You have your repertoire, your arsenal of moves. You have an idea about who you may compete against, but you're not 100% sure. You have to be able to respond to whatever music the DJ plays and you have to be able to demonstrate your skills in that moment. Uh, You might know that your competitor is 
really good at specific moves, better at you at some moves. So you're not going to do those moves. Maybe you'll do some other moves. Maybe you're going to showcase some originality, originality, development of your own style. This is, I think, is what also differentiates breaking from not only gymnastics, figure skating, but also other dance styles is that you are expected as a breaker to not look like everyone else. Mm. So that's, that's really important. You shouldn't look like other people when you break. You should have your own distinct style. Other breakers should be able to recognize you from afar, just from the way that you're breaking. So it's, there's quite a lot of strategy involved in addition to that improvisational element. Yeah. Okay. Now, do you expect you'll have a team uniform that you're going to have to wear for <laughs> competing at the Olympic Games? Oh, it's an, such an interesting question. And I am, I am really keen to see any potential designs for some pretty cool um, green and gold tracksuits. <laughs> I'm not really sure on that one. The thing is, breakers aren't into wearing the sort of body-hugging, spangly outfits, you know, as they do in, in gymnastics or other dance forms. It's it's quite the opposite of that, isn't it? Yes. Breaking is not about showing off the athleticism of the body like that exists, you know, in, in some of these other competitive forms. Breakers dress in a way that they could dress, you know, every day you know, slightly baggy jeans or track pants, sneakers, loose-fitting T-shirt, loose-fitting jumper, maybe a beanie. It's, it's come out of a cultural tradition of being ready to break at any point in the day. So, you know, in New York, breakers, you know, might be walking down the street and they might see someone from a different crew and they'd have to be ready to battle. So you've kind of always got to be ready to battle and that's why breakers they're wearing street clothes. Um, there's a completely different relationship to showing off that physicality of the body. Yeah. Rachel, how did you get into breaking? So I was actually introduced to breaking by my boyfriend. He was already a breaker. He'd been breaking for about 10 years. And I used to just timidly sit on the side and watch all the guys train he tried to encourage me to learn some moves because I'd done lots of different dance styles growing up, you know, the usual ones that I think pretty much every Australian woman does at some point. What, um, like ballet and jazz and... And tap, yep. yeah. Um, so it was a huge kind of cultural shock when I first started learning breaking, being taught a move and just having to be on the side and practice that move by myself, you know, not learning a routine, not dancing in front of a mirror. And all those things are really important in breaking to help you develop that individual style. So it took me a while to have the confidence to really start training breaking. Back then it was such a male-dominated culture. It still is a male-dominated culture, but I think it wasn't until I saw another woman break in real life that I was like, oh, yes, this is something that I can do. And I was completely inspired to start training seriously and regularly and push myself. And Dr. Rachel Gunn, a.k.a. Big Earl Ray Gunn, is one of Australia's top breakers, hoping to be competing at the Olympic Games in Paris in 2024, when breaking will be introduced onto the Olympic program. And outside of breaking, Rachel is a lecturer in media and creative industries at Macquarie University. And Rachel, great to talk to you. Thank you and good luck with it all. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Amanda. 
and you're listening to Sporty with Amanda Smith. runner, no doubt the shoes you run in are important to you. But what if you didn't own those shoes? Instead, you lease them by paying a monthly subscription. Kaspar Kopetti is one of the co-founders of the Swiss running shoe company On Running, and they're launching this subscription service later this year. Now, Kaspar, as I understand it, this is actually all about making environmentally friendly running shoes and then recycling them. So first of all, how will these shoes be different from other running shoes? What makes them sustainable? The cycle on the running shoe that we're launching here is On's first circular product. And the circle product means that it is designed from the get-go to be recycled and remade into a fresh pair of running shoes. And to do that, we had to go back to the drawing board and start completely fresh. So when you look at a running shoe, they're typically made out of up to 100 pieces. And these pieces are stitched together, welded, glued. It's not good for the environment because they're very hard to take apart. With Cyclone, um, we found a way to make a product out of five pieces and they're all made out of the same material. It's a polyamide. So once you're done with your shoe, you've gone through your six to 800 miles, we'll take it back, we'll clean it, we'll shred it, we'll melt it and make it into a new fresh pair of running shoes. If you're an avid runner, you'll need two to four pairs of running shoes per year. And many runners like to go back to the same shoe over and over again because their body has gotten used to them, it served them well. So then we said, hey, why, why don't we make this a subscription and we align the interest of the environment that the, the shoe comes back with the interest of, of a runner to always have a fresh pair of shoes. Um, and that's how the subscription was born. So the subscription is how it works. Uh, you pay a monthly fee of 30 euros. That's about 45 Australian dollars. Now that's Mm, a year, that's $540. So if say if you're going through two pairs a year, that's $270 a pair. So that's not cheap. You must be targeting serious runners with this. I think it's a combination of serious runners and people that want to have positive impact for the planet. I think when, when, you, when you do the math, if you have two pairs a year, it's basically what you would pay for a top-of-the-line run issue anyway. Here you have the added benefit that you're one of the first ones to take part in an initiative like this and to help start the circular economy with Cyclone. We can actually recycle this product about eight times, eight to ten times over. So in doing so, we reduce the footprint, whether it's waste or CO2 that we produce by about 90% compared to a conventional running shoe. And as I understand it, the the uh, materials you're using uh, for the upper anyway is a sort of bio-based material that's derived from castor beans? Yes, exactly. So the, there are two frontiers if we want to make our consumption uh, more sustainable. We need to move to a circular economy, but we also need to move away from petrol-based materials. So you know, unfortunately, all the stuff that we use um, for sports is made out of crude oil. And so we, we were looking for different 
carbon sources. And in the 70s, as some might remember, when the oil crisis was here, there was a lot of uh, many initiatives to find new ways of creating fuel. And the castor beans were one of these initiatives. The castor bean is a bean that only grows in very arid areas. Um, and we create a polyamide from it that is, from a chemical perspective, is just as good, if not better, as it was made from crude oil. And and no dyes are being used in these shoes either. Yes. So that has two reasons. I mean, dyeing takes up a lot of water. Um, and that is, of course, also a scarce uh, resource. But then when you think about the recycling match, we had the uh, blue shoes and green shoes and you would uh, recycle them together, you know, at the end, all the shoes would be either brown or gray. <laughs> and that's not very attractive. And then maybe off-white will become a cool color and will be a, a statement piece. Yeah, and off-white is, you know, what old-fashioned canvas running shoes always used to be anyway, I suppose. Exactly, Casper, yes. how difficult is it to make a zero-waste, fully recyclable shoe that's going to appeal to serious runners who want a high-performance shoe? Well, it's definitely not easy. <laughs> I mean, this has been a passion project for about 30 people at on, and we had to take many uh, turns and we went down uh, dead ends. The, the starting point was... We didn't want to compromise the performance to be more sustainable. That was a no-go. And we believe that through efficient design, you can achieve both. Now, the design team was actually very happy about the challenge because making more with less kind of sparked their creativity. Now, there was also some luck involved. You know, as we were working on the first prototypes, the outsoles were always a little bit too stiff, a little bit too hard, a little bit too heavy. Going back to the drawing board, we realized that by chance, by coincidence, that we were at the same time working in the lab on the product that our pro runners will use in the Tokyo Olympics for the marathon. So an ultra light, ultra fast shoe. And one of the engineers said, hey, this foam is also polyamide. And everybody's like, what? And we needed the polyamide to make it recyclable. So we actually then took that same material that we use in our uh, highest performance shoe that you cannot even buy and put it into Cyclone. And um, using the technology that we use for Cyclone, which is a, a very new manufacturing method called supercritical foaming, we made it so light that it is now actually our lightest and probably also fastest shoe. So why did you decide to do all this? Well, <laughs> I think you almost have to be blind not to see the impact that we're having on, on our environment and especially on our climate. Now, I grew up and, and still live in a very small town in the heart of the Swiss Alps. And if I look out the window right now, I see, for example, that the tree line is about 200 meters higher than it used to be when I was a child. So where I used to go uh, ski touring, I had some really good runs on my snowboard. There, There is now a forest. And at the same time, the glaciers have gone back. So we feel that this is, a, this is a challenge that our generation has to resolve. We can actually make a difference. And we looked at our whole impact and we realized that about 90% of the resources that we need are in the materials that we use. Being a, a younger brand, a smaller brand, we decided let's jump right to the forefront. 
And Casper Copetti is one of the co-founders of the running shoe company On Running, based in Switzerland, and due to launch this subscription service for environmentally sustainable and recyclable shoes in September this year. Casper, thank you for telling us about it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So will this idea of an environmentally responsible running shoe, the Cyclone, take off? Cameron Kippen is a former podiatrist turned historian of the shoe. And Cameron, with this running shoe, you sign up for replacements when you need them. You pay for that around $45 a month. That's $540 a year. So you'd want to be running enough to need to replace your shoes three or four times a year, really. Uh, if you swap them less often, of course, it starts to get pretty expensive. Uh, so you need to be reasonably, well, dare I say, well-heeled. Absolutely, and that's exactly what it is. It's showing that you can afford it, and therefore that makes you different from everybody else that's out in the park running. Is have a look at my shoes. Do you know they will be recycled and replaced? By the way, I mentioned that term well-heeled. Cameron, do you know what the origin of that phrase is? Yes, it relates to a time and place where only those and such as those could afford shoes. So back in the 16th, 17th century, a pair of shoes would probably cost a serf or a peasant as much as they could earn in a year. So therefore, those that could afford it actually would have shoes. Men were the ones that decided that the higher the heel, then the more sophisticated they were. And so therefore, high heels were a good sign of being part of higher society, hence well-heeled. Yeah. <laughs> Now, these, these shoes, apart from being recyclable, they are promoted as high performance. So are they, with that recycling element, likely to appeal to professional athletes? Well, in terms of promotion, of course it does. And your ears prick up the minute you hear that you're more aware of your carbon footprint. The complication is that serious athletes are very brand loyal and that they will stick to the same brand because they know that's what suits them as opposed to taking a new kid on the block and sticking with it, which I think is one of the uh, basic underlying factors of this new option. Well, now, the thing about these running shoes, this subscription running shoes, is that they're promoted, as we've been talking about, as bio-based and zero waste, and the whole shoe is recyclable. Now, that's a good thing, surely, and, and something that will appeal to enviro-conscious runners. Uh, absolutely, uh the complication is really it's the making of shoes that actually generate most of the nasties and the disposal of the chemicals involved. At the other end, it's the disposal of the shoe because put in a landfill, it can take up to a thousand years to disintegrate and that can create many problems if it's releasing carbon dioxide or whatever. But there's nothing new in having a biodegradable shoe the problem is, up until this moment in time, for many, these kinds of options are more expensive than equivalent shoes that would carry designer labels. But in essence, alternatives uh, do exist in the store. You can actually recycle your shoes. Many of the shoe retailers that specialise in sports equipment will, in fact, have a bin where you can deposit your old trainers and, and that's then ground down and made into running tracks and tennis courts and all that sort of stuff. So it already exists and has done for the last 15 years. Uh, there are several 
agencies who, in fact, will encourage you to re-gift your old shoes, sports shoes, and they may well be passed on to other places. I know that the football team up the road, the kids' football team, they ask the parents to um, donate their old soccer shoes and that they are sent to kids in Vietnam and other places. Uh, however, I think less than 1% of sports shoes in Australia at this time are actually put into a bin to be reused in some way, shape or form. So, you know, there's a lot to do. Yes, well, that's that's 99% more of shoes that uh, that could be recycled that aren't being recycled. Absolutely. And Cameron Kippen is a shoe and feet expert. As a former podiatrist and podologist, that's the study of feet in health and disease, and shoe historian based in Perth. Cameron, it's great to have you join us here on Sporty. Thank you. My pleasure. And my pleasure to be with you. I'm Amanda Smith, and producer of Sporty is Damien Rabbit. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.